When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the Dadvengers podcast, sponsored by Connects, encouraging kids of all ages to think outside the blocks. Now, more and more dads want to be involved in their children's development, but sometimes it can be hard to find guidance and support. Being a hands-on dad myself, I want to help create an aspirational image of fatherhood that we can all strive for through the variety of guests that we have on the show and their journey through parenthood. So let's talk, let's laugh, and let's share the things we find difficult and become the type of dads we really want to be. Today, I am joined by an award-winning blogger, a daddy of two, and an advocate for LGBTQ plus rights. He has shared the ups and downs of parenting his children with such honesty that the blog has won multiple awards, including Best Lifestyle Blog and Top 25 Adoption Blogs in the UK. I'm so pleased to welcome my friend, Jamie from Daddy and Dad to the podcast. Hey, Nigel. Hey, buddy. How are you? Good, thanks. Yeah. Especially good today because the sun's out and the kids are literally outside. I haven't seen them for about two hours. There you go. Which is like, yeah, unheard of. (laughs) I mean, because it's become like a bit of a bribe, actually, to get them to go outside at the moment (laughs) because they're just so like PS4. Oh, right. Sort of addicted. But the sun's out. Like you said, sun's out. So they're outside playing, which is you're having a win today. It's a win-win day. Oh, it's great. So listen, thank you so much for joining us. For any of the listeners who don't know, can you tell me a little bit about your parenting situation? Yeah, so Tom and I have been a couple, he's my fiancé, by the way, Tom, have been a couple for 20 years. And uh, we adopted our sons, Lionel Richard, back in 2014, so about seven years ago. Yeah, It's coming up for our family birthday in a few weeks. And when we adopted the boys, there wasn't very much information out there for, for adopters which would provide kind of an example of what it might look like and what it might feel like. So we decided right back at the beginning, we'd plug that gap by uh, uh, starting our blog, Daddy and Dad, which basically provides an account of our whole adoption story from our perspective, right from the day the kids moved in. Wow. Yeah. And uh, and it's still going strong. Seven years old. (laughs) Wow. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, I've read uh, quite a few bits on your blog and I absolutely love it. And it starts from when you got your sons but the adoption process starts way before that right or did back when you did it yes yeah it took about two years in total from like the day that I picked up the phone and made an inquiry uh right up to the day that the boys were placed with us and moved in um it it is a long process you know and I'll probably talk about that in a bit more detail later but it needs to be quite sort of convoluted and um and 
complex because adoption isn't easy. It's hard work. And, you know, they have to make sure that the people who are adopting children are ready to face the challenges ahead of them. So basically the adoption process itself for us, which, by the way, nowadays, if you adopt, is a little bit shorter than it was when we when we went through it. But it's split into segments. So to begin with, you're provided with some training, which basically educates you about the challenges and issues that face kids that are in care. It's pretty heartbreaking, to be honest, and hard work, but it's like a sort of intensive training course for about a week. And then you're assessed by a social worker who comes to your house and sits with you as a couple or on your own if you're a single adopter. And basically kind of a bit like a sort of therapeutic sort of session once a week with a social worker who looks at your finances and uh, your relationships and your net social network and family and everything and puts together a really big report about you and then you have to go in front of a huge panel uh, of kind of esteemed social workers doctors and teachers and people like that Mm. who approve you or not for adoption And at that stage, you have a bit of a kind of like midway cheer kind of uh, if you're approved at that stage, it's like a bit of a celebration because it's such a huge process to have gone through already, you know. Just to give me because you're you're quite involved in the process and you've got another job that you do now that we're going to talk about a little bit later on. But um, what are the sort of success rates of people uh, adopting? I don't know at what you mean, at like the approval stage when you go to the panel for the interview yeah this is like totally anecdotal and this is from me being a panel member now so for the last two or three years I've actually been sat as one of the professional people on the panel approving other people and in my experience I mean I've sat in on about 25 possibly 30 adopters being approved only one or two received like a tentative no but then it was really more of a kind of we need to look for more information on this particular issue or something that occurred for example one couple had only been together for about two years right and so and of that two years one of them they were going through the adoption process so there was a question about whether or not they would be resilient enough but it's usually something quite obvious that needs to be explored but usually what will happen is the social worker will be so detailed in their assessment that really at the panel stage when you're having an interview everything's already laid out so it's like basically every single closet's been opened and skeletons popped out there's not really there's not usually anything surprising that needs to be explored in a huge amount of detail at that stage sorry my kids are about to come in and ask for lunch I think so uh, you might get a little quick welcome wave to the Avengers, kids. welcome welcome yeah <laughs> you know that within that whole time how long was it with that you're being assessed before you get to the approval interview let's say so that usually takes about six months so that six months of people coming around once a week is it very very intrusive you have to get yourself in the right mindset for it okay intrusive is quite a negative word we kind of we thought it was a little bit intrusive to begin with because we didn't know our social worker very well at that yeah. stage but actually after the first couple of meetings she became like a really close friend yeah And also she was really well organised and had some really good feedback. So like even though she was asking questions that to anybody else would seem really intrusive and maybe even rude. Yeah. Actually, the feedback we were receiving was really positive and quite useful. So it it did start off being a little bit intrusive. But, you know, a couple of weeks in, it was just therapeutic. It was just really nice for Tom and I to sit there and actually talk to like somebody else about our relationship, you know, because. Things like our relationship dynamic were explored. Yeah, I can imagine it being a little bit like therapy, 
all the ups and downs of a relationship that you may not talk about on a daily basis, suddenly you're talking about them on a weekly session. I can I can see it being a little bit like going to a therapist. Yeah, it was nice. And, um, and, and I think people are maybe put off a little bit by the idea that they're going to have to open up and speak to somebody yeah. new. But we receive a lot of questions and inquiries from young people who want to become an adoptive parent. Yeah. And particularly LGBTQ people are concerned that the assessment will be intrusive in a negative way. And my advice to them is just go into it with a completely open mind and be an open book and honest. And you will probably take out of it, of the process as much as the process takes it from you. You get out what you put in, basically. Yeah. And when you adopt, to begin with, at the very start of the process, often it can be for kind of selfish purposes, like, you know, I want to become a parent. This is my route to parenthood. But it doesn't take long, like only a couple of weeks into the process when you learn about the kids in care that you realise actually it's not about you at all. This is about rescuing neglected kids. Yeah. And preparing yourself for all the possible challenges and complications that might occur when they move in with you. Yeah. Which is like quite a heartbreaking moment when you realise that's what's happening. But on the other hand, you kind of also feel like you're making someone else's life better. Definitely. We had Ashley John Baptiste on on a previous episode. Yeah. And he is from the care background. His his whole childhood he spent in care. And, you know, it was it was heartbreaking to hear some of the stuff that he'd been through and seen. So to know that people like that have the opportunity to be adopted and live with a lovely family like like you have is is an amazing thing. Yeah, it's nice. It is really, really nice. And you know, it's quite magical, actually, as well, because fast forward through the process, the day you meet the kids for the first time, it's really surreal because you like turn up at their foster care setting and you have you have to introduce yourselves to them. It's bizarre. How was that? Really, really nerve wracking. Literally. I mean, I've been through a lot of interviews and I used to have a fear of public speaking as well. So that was a huge thing to overcome. But that day was the most nervous Tom and I had ever been. And we turned up really early, sort of half an hour early and parked up um, around the corner and sort of had a little chat with each other about the just enormity of what we were about to do. Um, And we'd been to the foster home, which was in a lovely part of the city that they came from. Really, really lovely foster parents as well. We've been there a few times before, so we were already familiar with the layout of the house and we kind of knew what to expect in terms of where the kids would be in the house and where we'd sit. Yes. And, and we'd been told what the kind of agenda was for the morning. Um, but we were still so nervous because there's so many uncertainties, like, will the kids like us, you know, and what will happen, what we're going to say to each other. Yeah, of course. But actually, when we got there, Tom and I had a little squabble about who's going to ring the doorbell and we walked up the big drive. <laughs> And their foster mum opened the front door. Um, and Richard, he was only tiny. He was like just four the week or two before we met them. Yeah. So he was really, basically like a big toddler still. Um, he was sort of hiding behind her and looked really excited. And they both had little smart outfits on and their hair brushed to one side, like with a side parting. They looked really smart. And uh, yeah, so Richard sort of dashed off into the house and we gave uh, their foster mum a lovely cuddle. And then they were sat. then they were sat at the dining table playing with kids' tablets. And I just remember saying, hi, Lyle, I'm daddy and shaking his hand. And it was just the most weird, surreal thing ever. And Tom picked Richard up and had him over his shoulder and they were giggling. The way you describe it, it's like you can vividly see it in your head. 
now, yeah. even even so many years later. And that's that's amazing. It's beautiful. I know. I should really write a book about it because I I've gone through it so many times in my head. I could exp- I could literally explain every detail and every feeling. But basically, the overriding feeling was just enormous relief because, yeah. of course, the process was so long. And we we were matched with the boys about six months before we met them. So we had a few photographs of them and we'd sent them little videos. But And we'd had a few little videos of them cooking and stuff from their yeah. foster mum. But really, it was very difficult to picture their personalities and what they're going to be like. But it's very clever how they match adopters with children because they do match you with them sort of specific very specifically what what's the matching based on what 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 sort of thing well they've got your huge report that the social worker's written about you which includes all of your relationship dynamics everything so basically the matching panel which is the same panel that a preview for adoption have all that information and then when you have selected a profile for children that you think would would suit you that goes to this panel and they also assess whether or not you'd be a good match so it's all scrutinized yeah and but our boys basically we knew the very second we saw them we we saw a similarity between them and our nephews so we kind of already could picture ourselves with them as part of our family and as it happens coincidentally they get on really really well with our nephews so they're a bit like four brothers, basically, when they're together. That's awesome. I mean, the, our eldest son and uh, and my youngest nephew are only about 10 months apart and they look like spitting image of, images of each other. Wow. Have you spoken to Richard and Lyle about that first day meeting? What, what have they told you about it? It's such a long time ago for them and probably was less significant for them than it was okay. for us. I know it was still a massive deal for them. But they had a lovely morning playing on computer games and meeting us. For us, it was much more of a monumental thing, I think. And so we do have the occasional conversation, but most of our conversations about that period in their life are basically trying to keep their memories of what happened before that alive. Yeah. In kind of a positive way so that they feel like they've got a heritage and they can remember where they came from. So how long was it between meeting them that first time and then bringing them home? Yeah, that period of the adoption process is called the introductions. And so over the course of either one, two or three weeks, usually, ours was two weeks, you basically hang out with your new kids for like a little bit more time each day and you get to know their routine. So, for example, on the first day, we just played with them and introduced ourselves. And we stayed in a hotel at the end of their road. And then on the second day, we were there for like an extra hour. And it was a bit more routine, like helping putting the washing in, making a cup of tea. They showed us all their toys. And that grew and grew and grew. And then by the end of it, we were putting them in the bath, saying goodnight to them. Wow. And things like picking them up from school and taking them to the park. During the second week of introductions, we took them to Drayton Manor and went on like the... Thomas Land rides yeah. and things. That was our first taste of like an actual whole day out with them. And then we also took them to a museum and we wandered around the city centre. So that was quite exciting. Basically, the introduction period gradually gives you more and more feel for what it's going to be like yeah. when they join you. But it doesn't really prepare you for the realities of the day they move in, because that is totally bonkers. You basically, we, we um, it'll be the same for every adoptive parent, but we arrived at the at the foster home in the morning, about maybe 8am, yeah. and the kids were there with luggage. 
and like a box of toys like they were leaving their job you know it was crazy and they just literally we packed the back of the car up in they got we sort of kissed goodbye to a tearful foster mum and drove off down the motorway oh wow that's i mean it's yeah i mean it's just just the same as when you have your own child you you bring them home you're like what the can i have to take care of this human being am i qualified (laughs) oh no more like i am very underqualified (laughs) for this so they moved in and that day i guess was just so hugely stressful Although it was very, very positive, it was so hugely stressful that I don't really have vivid memories of it. What I do remember is that we allowed them to explore the house and they were originally going to be in bunk beds in one bedroom. And then it very quickly became apparent that wouldn't work because they were sort of fighting right from the very second they got in the house. So we took all my office furniture out of the spare bedroom and put a, put a single bed up in there. Right. And... We had a takeaway pizza, which was really exciting for me and the boys. And um, and then they went off to bed about seven o'clock. And the first, I would say, month bedtimes after they went to bed were very hard work because they were really, really homesick right. and just wanted to go back to their foster home that they'd been in for about 18 months. So they were crying, crying out for their foster mum, basically. It was, very, it was really horrible. Um, and we, right from the very first night, sort of would lie on the bed with them and cuddle them and say, you know, we love you boys. You're going to be here forever now. Uh, because of course they, I think they, they thought that this was another temporary move. Right. In the back of their mind. Of Cause they'd been moved around a lot. Yeah. And, um, and a lot of kids that have been in foster care find it quite difficult to feel any kind of sense of permanence. When they're going through that sort of adjustment period and it sounds like it was quite difficult because they're missing their foster parent. Is it one of those situations where you have to kind of go sort of cold turkey and then not allowed to have any contact with their foster parent? That whole period of time, I would say maybe the first six months is really, really well planned by a social worker and the parents. So basically the first month at least is concentrating on setting up a really stringent routine at home. So that everything's really, really predictable. So basically we had getting up time, breakfast, um, and you have to involve the kids in everything. So they feel like they're in charge of what they're doing. Teeth brushing, playtime, cuddle time, watching TV, everything's kind of mapped out on a schedule. And I think to outsiders, it looked as though we were being way over strict, basically. Um, But really the whole point of the whole exercise was to make sure the kids settled in. Yeah, of course. So we had to sort of close all our doors, basically, to the outside world. A bit like lockdown. Yeah, it was like lockdown. Spent a lot of time one-on-one with the kids, playing outdoors in the back garden and, like, therapeutic play. So kind of, you know, rolling a ball between one another and talking. Yeah. But everything was so scrupulously planned, a bit like the adoption assessment, that it did look, I think, to the outside world as though we had just completely disappeared. And a lot of people were asking us how things were going, which the blog was a great outlet for, to be fair. Yeah. Uh, Lyle went straight into second, into primary school reception year after about two weeks of yeah. moving in. because And that wasn't advised. We kind of went against all the advice for this. But he was so desperate to play football. Um, and, and the kids out the front of our house where the village green is were a bit too old for him to be going out and playing. Plus, we were just really paranoid about letting the kids go and run around yeah. outside. Um, without us standing there 
and watching them. So basically he went into school straight away and he was really brave and already had like a sort of little team of six or seven best mates after about three weeks of meeting us. Um, So that was really nice and joined the football team. So apart from the, the struggles with bedtime, were there any other struggles that you and Tom had? Did it put a strain on your relationship with Tom? Basically our relationship dynamic changed in the very second the boys joined us. Um, we basically went from boyfriends to kind of like a team of dads yeah. overnight. And so, and but it wasn't necessarily a negative thing. It's just we basically put our kind of like intimacy on hold while we were just completely 100% focused on the boys, you know? So, um, and we, we were sort of prepared for that, but I don't think it even hit home while it was happening until afterwards and we look back. Now, you mentioned that you were uh, on the adoption panel now. How much do you think it's changed over the last nine years, let's say, since you were in the process and and being interviewed to now when you interview people? Um, The actual panel itself hasn't changed at all. The only sort of like administrative difference is that at the end of the panel now, you have to you have to like put a tick next to the timeline. So basically, because Ofsted have put these milestones into the process to make it all a bit quicker and more streamlined okay. si- since we adopted. Um, so the actual process now up to the stage where you are approved has a deadline. So new adopters starting the process now can expect to be approved. I don't know how long it is, but maybe in six months or so. Wow. Six months, and you when you did it, it was two years. When we did it, that side of the process took about a okay. year. But still, that's a big change. That's that's a that streamlined a lot to go from uh, twelve months to six months, half the time. Yeah, and that allows you to take more time on the side on the bit of the process, which is in your hands, which is the actual family finding and looking through all the profiles and looking for the child that matches you the best. So, just give me quickly a rundown of the different parts that you go through. So, yeah, the first stage, and I can't remember exactly what they call the stages, but the first stage is sort of a training stage. Yeah. So you go into a kind of a group of um, other adopters in a room with a social worker and there are other people like sort of paediatric doctors and things come in and talk to you. And you basically learn about the children that are in care and the kind of challenges you can expect to face. And then you're assessed. I think that's part of stage one as well. But that's when a social worker comes to visit you at home and spends time with you. Like I was mentioning earlier, it's quite therapeutic. You sort of sit there and talk about all your um, traumas and things that you faced and your finances and your relationships and everything. And then they put together this big report about you. And then you go to the big interview, which is called panel. Okay. At that stage, you're approved. And then the next stage, so you've been approved, you are going to be a parent. Then the next stage is family finding and all the administrative stuff that happens behind the scenes as well. So basically you're looking for your children. You receive all these profiles from various different channels and sources of these gorgeous kids and they've all got a heartbreaking backstory. At that stage as well, I must add that you kind of have to stick to your preferences, which sounds really like sort of distasteful. But basically you need to choose from a list of preferences, what your children are going to be like and what characteristics they'll have, yeah. what level of issues you think you might be able to cope with yeah. and that kind of thing, which we did. And basically, because we were certain at that stage, we wanted to adopt two or more children. 
that narrowed our pool of profiles right down to just a handful, which made it a lot easier to sort of digest the information about the kids. Otherwise, it just becomes really traumatic to read all these backstories and you've got thousands of kids presented to you. Then your social worker applies for more information about the children that you feel like you could be interested in being a parent to. Yeah. And hopefully after that, you settle on one particular profile, which like we did with Lyle and Rich. And then behind the scenes, it's a bit like moving house. It's a bit like your, well, basically your social worker and the kids' social worker have lots of administrative work to do to put the two of you together. Yeah. And I can't even pretend to know what that entails. But basically, there's a lot of legal stuff about the children and your status. Then anyway, all that happens, blah, 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 blah. And then you receive a phone call that says, right, you're going to meet your children on Monday. Be here at a certain time. You're staying at this hotel down the road from them. And then the introductions start that we spoke about earlier. Yeah. And they go on for a week or two and then they move in. And then, but that's not the end of the process because they move in with you and you're visited by their and your social worker. So at different times, once a week. Their social worker comes around to check up on them and how you're getting on and to talk about sort of parenting strategies and all that sort of stuff. Any issues that you're experiencing and your social worker comes around basically to check that you're not going completely mad. Yeah. And that you're comfortable and fine and everything. And you, and by that stage, you will have a really good relationship with your social worker. So they're a re- really nice person to have around. Of course. Uh, That goes on for about six months. Uh, And during that stage, you are co-parenting with the local authority that looked after them before. Okay. So you're not actually their legal parents until about six months after they move in. That presents challenges in terms of passports, second surnames, you know, all that sort of thing. They are basically still the children they were before they met you. Yeah, of course. In terms of their status. And then anyway, so then after six months, you go to the family court for this great big celebratory hearing with a judge and like all your family sit in the pews. And at that stage, the children are presented with new birth certificates and they become your sort of legally your children. Wow. Connecting with your kids is at the heart of what Dadvengers is about, which is why we're so happy to have Connects as our sponsor. Connects and Kid Connects have projects for all the family and they're the perfect activity for kids and adults to connect naturally through play, imagination and creativity. So you write the blog, which sort of goes through, it's like a journal of your adoption, isn't it really? What made you decide to do it? Well, for a start, there were two reasons why I set the blog up to begin with, which are different to the reason that I maintain it now. To begin with, basically, for a start, the information that we were provided with by the adoption agency about adoption and the, and the kind of and adoptive, adoptive families um, didn't really provide us with any clue as to what we would look like as a family and what kind of feelings we would perhaps experience. Um, there were a couple of adoption blogs out there, which we didn't really identify with, like they were I don't know. They just weren't really that we could. They didn't represent us. So I thought, right, let's start a blog to basically fill that gap. So before I started the blog, I knew already knew how to write a blog because I was at the time a digital marketing manager looking after several blogs for brands. So I was like writing blogs for Kellogg's and McVitie's and all these different brands. So I knew the technology behind it um, and how how it would work. Um, and I knew that I had a talent for writing, which I hadn't put down before. I hadn't like put it out there. So basically, before I started the blog, I researched the kind of personality I would have as a blogger for the reader. 
by basically binging Helen Fielding novels and Dawn French. And I read the Miranda, Miranda um, autobiography. Yeah. And various other sort of like snobby female character books, um, which that became my kind of like caricature personality for the blog because I wanted it to be funny. Yeah. And appeal to like a broad audience. The other reason I started it to begin with as a blog was that I was being asked by all my friends and family how the process is going. And you know how I mentioned that we like closed all our doors and closed ourselves off for a month or two. Like my mum and dad and my grandma's and Tom's parents were really interested to find out how we were getting on. So basically I was just to begin with, I was just sharing it on WhatsApp or text messaging and Facebook to our close mates, but they then started sharing it more widely and like within the first couple of months, we had 10,000 readers already. Wow. Um, so I knew, I suddenly thought, you know, this is actually quite big. Um, and, and that also was assisted by the fact that adoption agency, our adoption agency and other adoption charities and local authorities were dishing our, our blog out as kind of like reading material. So that was really interesting. And then, and then that October... I mean, I'd only had the blog for about four months. We won the Adoption Blog of the Year at the Adoption Week Awards. How often were you posting at that time? About once a week. So basically my routine was, if I was particularly stressed out after a day with the boys, I would have a glass of wine and write a blog post. And my blog posts were set. The setting for each of the blog posts to begin with was like one uh, either a horrendous children's party or a soft play okay. or somewhere. So I would basically be writing as though I'm sat in a soft play talking about what the kids are up to, you know, picking noses and stuff. It was all very gritty and real. Yeah. I thought that was would be quite an accessible backdrop for an adoption story. I mean, the, the information I'd read so far about adoption had all been so corporate that I just wanted it to be really relatable. Yeah. Now, when you're writing a blog like that, you're talking about your family, you're, you know, you're putting it out there, what you're up to and what you're doing. Did you have to think about safety for the boys and, you know, how much you would show? How did you manage that? Yes. So, and it's the same now. With location-based stuff, we would always talk about the past so people don't know where we are. We gave the kids um, different names, which we still do now. So I call them Lyle and Rich, which they're totally on board with, but that's not their names. (laughs) Nice. We never show any photographs of them as little children we basically didn't even start showing family photographs until their characteristics changed significantly enough that they look different yeah. to how they did before. What do they think of, of what you do? I don't know. They're, I mean, they're, they're really, really happy to be involved because the basically my job opens so many doors and opportunities for, the, for us as yeah. a family. So, you know, and, and remembering their their history and, you know, the fact that they were rescued from a life of neglect. They now have all this amazing opportunity, you know, trips to Disneyland, paid trips to theme parks. All the good uh, stuff. All the latest tech and all the good stuff they really enjoy. So, you know, generally they don't, I mean, they're not recognised at school for what we do as a job. So they're, they're very ordinary kids. Speaking of ordinary kids, what was childhood like for you? I grew up in Plymouth until I was 12. In a nice family home, we played outside a lot. I mean, it was the 80s, so that we didn't really have any technology to play with back then. Born in 1980, with my and my sister is two years younger than me. We were kind of enemies maybe until we were about 12. 
and then we colluded and we were kind of best mates forever since then. And what was your uh, relationship with your dad like? Has it sculpted the way you parent as a father now? No, not really. Dad and I are really, really close and have been since we were. I was about 25. But to be honest, my teenage years with my dad were hard. He had a big corporate banking job and was out a lot. And so I don't, to be honest, my mum did most of the parenting and my dad earned the money. And, you know, during my teenage years as well, being gay back then was just completely taboo. Uh, Had you come out to your parents? No. So as a teenager, even though I was gay and I was called gay a lot, you know, which didn't didn't actually help very much um, at school and stuff. uh, I was basically to any outsider looking in, I was just a straight boy until I was about 17 or 18. I moved out when I was 17 okay. into a big townhouse in Leamington Spa with three of my mates. And then I went to uni. And that's where basically I decided I would come out when I meet someone. Because I was like kind of thinking, you know, it's going to be a huge traumatic experience. Why come out? Have someone there to support. Yeah. Why well, just come out and, and have to work all that out for myself? So I met Tom when I was 21 through my sister who was friends with Tom's best friend. So wait, hold on. Tom was your first boyfriend? First proper boyfriend, yeah. Wow. And you stayed together ever since. Proper romantic story. Yeah. So what, what was the family reaction when you, uh, when you came out? My sister's reaction, I mean, me and her have always been really, really, really close yeah. friends. So I think there was a mixture of the fact that she was probably a little bit upset that I hadn't told her before. There's something so important about me. Okay. Um, and the fact that there was suddenly another person in my life that was almost or differently, but equally as important yeah. as her. Uh, but, you know, I still continued to go and visit my sister every weekend. You worked through that pretty quickly. Yeah. But parents? It was just a big new change. My mum, I came out to first because, of course, my relationship with my dad then, although I loved him, we weren't really close. Was there a reason that you weren't close? Just through him working away a lot when we were when I was a teenager. And then I think I was quite a difficult older teenager because I don't think they, my parents really understood me. So I told my mum when she was dropping me off at uni, we were like driving through Coventry. Just as you're getting out of the car. Oh, by the way, mum. Yeah, but no, about half an hour before I knew that we were kind of closed in together. So I thought that would be quite a good time to tell her without an escape route. Yeah. And, you know, my mum, she's open-minded and lovely and kind, but she's a Christian person. I think that there is always going to be a little bit of a conflict of beliefs when it comes to LGBTQ issues. So she had a little bit, she was upset, but I think probably it brought us closer together because I disclosed something so private and personal with her. And then what about dad? I said to mum, don't tell dad. I just said, look, I can't be bothered with it. My phone rang about half past seven that evening and it was my dad. And, you know, he wasn't very happy about it, but he wasn't unhappy about it either. He just basically said, oh, we talked about it. And he said, why, you know, why? I can't remember the exact conversation, but why have I come out now? Why do I feel like I need to label myself? And I was like, I've got a boyfriend. You know, this is quite a big moment for me. And it took basically my parents a couple of weeks So my dad came up and took me out for dinner. We chatted about, you know, where I see myself in five or six years and what's going on. Sounds a little bit like there was a little bit of denial from your parents and they thought it might have been a phase you were going through maybe. 
and they were just gonna wait it out maybe support maybe they weren't particularly supportive or not they were just kind of there for me which is what i needed really because you know nobody needs to have their parents involved in their sex life anyway so it's not really any of their business but on the other hand it was quite nice to have them like my mum that I, i basically went back and worked at the pub that i had been working at for a couple of years back in Warwick in my hometown. So that first couple of weeks, mum was able to come and visit me at work for lunch and that kind of thing. Yeah. They didn't actually meet Tom for about a month. And the first time they met him, I took him around to their house. And I was really nervous about it. My dad and Tom like hit it off immediately. Tom was out in his garage with him, (laughs) looking at the car and all his tools and stuff. And I made a nice cup of tea with mum and sat down. And they, I think at that stage when they realised actually Tom's really ordinary and lovely, like I am, (laughs) that was the moment when they were able to kind of accept what's going on and it was all fine. So you and Tom worked to raise awareness around LGBTQ plus rights and issues. You've been role models as gay adoptive parents. You must have faced some adversities in that. I know you've spoken to me about them before, but I'd like to speak about them again, just so that some of our listeners can hear and know the rights and wrongs and be able to be allies for you. Yeah. So what kind of things have you experienced? What kind of adversities? I mean, the adoption process, did you have people that were against what you were doing there? Not against necessarily, but as a gay person or any LGBTQ or person of an ethnic... Minority, uh, yeah. ...diverse background, faces kind of intrusive questions from people that are a bit rude. Mm. And like assumptions people make. So basically, you know, during the adoption process, even from social workers, we occasionally had, and this was basically around the conversation of what we were going to be called. So of course, we everyone knows now we're called daddy and dad. But, you know, people would say, oh, well, how are you going to define yourselves? Because there's no mum, you know, and stuff like that. And you just think, oh my God, that's actually a really rude question. Have you responded to those people? I'm just really, really straight down the line to say what I think. Like, I don't really have a filter, Nigel. So basically, I will just say to someone, that's especially rude, you know, or or what would you like to me to ask what happened to your mum? You know, and stuff like that, because it is just like, just so rude. But basically, forgetting all that stuff. So thinking about kind of, my, the driver for me and raising awareness of LGBTQ issues is homophobia and transphobia, right? So yeah. I grew up in a in an environment where gay being gay was completely taboo. Mm. AIDS and HIV was so badly managed that basically gay people were labelled disease-ridden and dangerous and not the kind of people you would ever want around kids. Yeah. For like literally until I was about 20, you know, you, we still weren't legally allowed to even adopt kids until I was 22. We weren't even able to get married until only like five years or six years ago. Yeah. So basically we grew up in an era which was extremely dark for gay people. And I don't think things have developed and moved on as much as people, again, on the outside looking in would would think. Yeah. Like, I think there's this um, misconception that now gay people can get married and have kids and generally have protection against homophobia at work and discrimination. Yeah. That things are fine, but they're not. Things aren't fine at all. Um, There's, like, basically shitloads of prejudice against LGBTQ people still nowadays, and particularly trans people, right? So my feeling is that I'm extremely privileged to 
have this house and boyfriend and children and a lovely job, which means I can just be myself and earn money without having to cope with an office or other people. And I feel extremely privileged. And that puts me in a position where I should now stand up for other people that are experiencing what I had 10, 15 years, 20 years ago. And for me at the moment, that's trans people um, and especially trans kids and LGBTQ kids at school. Because schools, even though now Section 28, which used to be a legal thing, which prohibited people at school discussing LGBTQ people, was that was abolished like maybe 20 years ago. I can't tell you what day, what year. But you'd think with that being abolished, that schools would be a safe place for LGBTQ kids, but they're not. It's still taboo. Like, you know, even though it's so easy for school teachers to explain for example that alan turing was gay when they're learning about computer science or that um, various other historical figures or celebrities or people are lgbtq or have children with their same-sex partners it never gets mentioned and if you look in a library in any school you'll probably struggle to find a single book with any lgbtq representation do you think there are schools that would like to to be educating about that but then they feel pressure not to because they think that there are parents that are going to make complaints and and do that kind of thing. Yeah, I think there's that. I think schools are nervous because they might receive complaints. But I think there's also schools that are just so busy and overwhelmed that it's not on their even on their agenda yet. It's not even on the remit yet. For parents out there that are listening, how important is it, even though they might not be from the LGBTQ plus community, how important is it for them to be allies for you? Yeah, well, that's actually more important, I think, than gay people like me um, raising awareness of these issues, right? Because LGBTQ people, particularly public people like me, have quite a narrow audience. Like most of my audience are either dads or LGBTQ people themselves. Yeah. To achieve equality really straight people need to be reaching their broad audience with these messages and and also parents who slip into conversation you know when you're older kids when you've got a boyfriend or a girlfriend and little things like that their children are going to be naturally a little bit more comfortable and open-minded when they experience issues whatever they are when they're a bit older and they want to tell you about them even if your kids which is highly likely they're not LGBTQ, they are going to have LGBTQ friends and family members when they're older. So, you know, it's just kind of like a kind of lesson in tolerance and kindness, isn't it? Well, listen, right, there's one question that we ask all of our dad vengers before they finish up, and it's this one. If you could have a dad superpower, what would it be and why? I guess, oh, my goodness, Maybe the ability to click my fingers like Mary Poppins and the house be tidy. That's a good superpower right there. The old Mary Poppins click. Do you know what would be really good? The ability to be able to go back in time briefly and change a decision that you've made that's wrong. Because quite often, as a, and this is thinking parenting-wise, yeah, exactly. I've dealt, dealt with situations, got too angry or like said something stupid or, you know, made mistakes. Yes, yeah, we all do. That would be really good just to go back and change, like, a decision just slightly. Thank you so much for spending some time. You've been really insightful into LGBTQ plus issues and the community, into your adoption process. 
I think it's really, really informative and, and hopefully some people are going to get some great stuff from the time that you spent here with us. So thank you very, very much. Oh, my pleasure. It's been lovely. And remember everyone to go to my blog, Daddy and Dad. You can Google it. All our channels are up on Google. Yeah, thank you so much, dude. Wow, how amazing to hear from someone who is an inspirational ally for the LGBTQ community and to hear from someone who's gone through the adoption process and now helps people go through that process. Jamie, we salute you. If you'd like to find out more about our Dadvengers community or you'd like to share anything with us, you can do so via the website, which is dadvengers.com. Or if you'd like to contact us via our Instagram or Facebook channels, you can do that too. Thank you very much for listening. This has been the Dadvengers podcast sponsored by Connects, encouraging kids of all ages to think outside the blocks. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.